Hey, hey, everybody. This is Volts for April 12th, 2023. The importance of upcoming EPA regulations on power plants. I'm your host, David Roberts. A couple of weeks ago, the policy analysts at the Rhodium Group put out a new report showing that the Biden administration's legislative achievements are not quite enough to get it to its Paris climate goals. But those goals could be reached if the legislation is supplemented with smart executive action. Some of the most important upcoming executive actions are EPA's greenhouse gas standards for new and existing power plants. The Supreme Court famously struck down Obama's clean power plan, his attempt to address existing power plants, judging it impermissibly expansive. So now EPA has to figure out what to ask of individual plants. The agency's decisions will help shape the future of the U.S. power sector and determine whether the Biden administration gets on track for its climate goals. To talk through those decisions in more detail, I contacted Lissa Lynch, who runs the Federal Legal Group at the NRDC's Climate and Clean Energy Program. We discussed the options before the EPA, the viability of carbon capture and hydrogen as systems of pollution reduction, and whether Biden will have time to complete all the regulatory work that remains. One quick note before the episode begins, because I am a Nimrod, I spent the entire conversation calling Lisa Lisa. My apologies to her, to you, and to the universe. Uh, please enjoy the episode. All right, with no further ado, uh, Lisa Lynch from NRDC. Welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. This is a subject that I used to spend a lot of time thinking about <laughs> back in the day, and it's sort of uh, receded for a while, and now it's back. So it's very exciting for a nerd like me. So I want to just quickly walk through some history with this and then sort of hand it off to you so you can tell us where where things stand now, because I don't want to assume, you know, that listeners have been obsessively following this now nearly two decade long <laughs> saga. So um, let me just run through some history really briefly. So um, listeners will recall in 2007, there's a big Supreme Court case, Massachusetts versus EPA, in which the Supreme Court ruled that CO2 is eligible to be listed as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act if EPA determines it is a threat to human health. And then shortly thereafter, Obama's EPA officially determined that it is a threat to human health via the endangerment finding. So this is one thing I'm not sure everybody understands, and I just want to get it on the table up front. So for context... The combination of those two things, mass versus EPA, plus the endangerment finding, means that EPA is lawfully obliged to regulate greenhouse gases. This is not a choice. This is not something <laughs> it can do or not do, depending on how it feels or who's president. They have to do it. So then, um, you know, that triggers the obligation, three separate obligations. You have to regulate mobile sources which Obama did with his new fuel economy regulations, which are still in place as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Then you have to regulate new 
stationary sources of greenhouse gases, which Obama did. And as far as I know, we can come back to this in a second, but as far as I know, those new power plant regulations that Obama passed are still in effect. And then thirdly, you have to regulate existing stationary sources of greenhouse gases, which mainly means power plants. And so Obama's effort to regulate existing power plants is called the Clean Power Plan. People may uh, remember the fuss and ado about the Clean Power Plan. As it was under development, lawsuits were immediately launched, of course. The Supreme Court took the extremely unusual step of putting the law on hold, basically, not letting it go into implementation until it had heard this case. And then it heard the case, rejected the Clean Power Plan on the basis of uh, the newly <laughs> dreamed up, rectally extracted uh, major questions doctrine. So that's where we stand now is we've got the mobile regs in place, although Biden is updating those two, I think. We've got the new power plant regs in place, although Biden is also updating those. But as for existing power plant regulations, there are basically none. It's been a legal uh, mire. And so Biden's got to do those too. So <laughs> let's talk about what Supreme Court said about the clean power plan and their ruling and how that constrains the sort of solution space that we're looking at now. So in West Virginia versus EPA, that was the Supreme Court decision from last summer. The Supreme Court held that this section of the Clean Air Act that we're talking about here, Section 111, does not clearly provide authority for the approach that EPA took in the Clean Power Plan. And what they did there, we sort of refer to as generation shifting. In the Clean Power Plan, EPA looked at the power sector as a whole, and they concluded that the best system for reducing fossil fuel-fired power plant emissions was a combination of measures, including shifting generation away from dirtier fossil power toward cleaner power. So essentially retiring dirtier power plants and replacing them with renewables. Right. So the unit of analysis here was a state's whole power fleet, not the power plant individual, but the whole power fleet. Right. And, and the reasoning for that in the clean power plant context was supported by the companies themselves, the power companies themselves and the states who said, yes, this is the way that we are dealing with decarbonizing our fleets. We are looking out across our whole fleets, retiring the dirtiest sources and replacing them with cleaner generation. That's how the existing um, Reggie program in California cap and trade programs work. Right. That's how many of the you know power companies that have emission reduction or clean energy targets are doing that. And let's just say Republicans have been saying for decades that regulations are too restrictive and they're not flexible enough and <laughs> states and power companies need flexibility. And this was perfectly flexible. This is absolutely as flexible as you could make a system. It just said to the state, do whatever you want to do <laughs> to lower the average emissions of your power plant fleet. And then, you know, conservatives got what they wanted and hated it for other reasons. 
you know, one of the things that's important about what is left on the table after this decision is there is still a considerable amount of flexibility on the compliance side. So what the Supreme Court was really dealing with was the method EPA uses for setting the level of the standard, basically setting the target Mm -hmm. that industry has to meet. So the Supreme Court explicitly took that generation shifting approach off the table for purposes of setting the level of the standard itself. And so after this decision, EPA can still set standards, in John Roberts' words, based on the application of measures that would reduce pollution by causing the regulated source to operate more cleanly. (laughs) Right. So the the idea here is EPA, by interpreting the Clean Air Act in such a way as to apply to the power plant fleet overall and sort of telling states how they have to shape their overall power plant fleets, EPA was assuming too much authority, basically like – Doing something major, (laughs) despite too major for the words in the Clean Air Act, which, you know, I don't want to dwell on this too long. But let's just pause here to acknowledge that no one then in the ruling, now in the subsequent ruling since then, in all scholarship, knows what the hell major means or when it is that an agency has crossed the line from proper regulatory, you know, interpretation into, oops, too major. It really just kind of sounds like and seems that major means anything bigger than John Roberts is comfortable with. Right. I mean, this is the one of the really concerning things about the major questions doctrine just generally is that it is murky and it does have this sort of paralyzing effect on yes intentionally exactly it is it is explicitly anti-regulatory and explicitly you know sort of intended to stop agencies in their tracks and make them question oh is this is this too major major? and there's no answer right so naturally you're going to be cautious because you can't there's no definition of major it's just whatever irritates john roberts you know when he wakes up one day so this was the the opening salvo, I think, in a longer Supreme Court um, effort, basically, to browbeat agencies into being timid. Uh, so anyway, point being, EPA can't use the overall power fleet as a sort of benchmark through which to set this standard. So what does that leave? Like, what's the sort of range of motion that we think we still can act in here when we're talking about these new standards? So now that we have this Supreme Court decision in place, EPA's got some guidelines and they can base the next round of standards on, as Justice Roberts put it, measures that make the plants operate more cleanly. So what they're looking for now is a rule that looks more like what traditional pollution regulations of the past looked like based on scrubbers, bag houses, Mm -hmm. the stuff that you can physically attach onto the plant or do at the plant itself to reduce that plant's emissions. When it comes to reducing CO2 emissions, the options are limited. (laughs) Well, let me me, me pause there before we get into into that. I just want to say one thing that I learned from your writing that I had not known and I don't know 
that it's widely known. You know, so there's been talk ever since Mass versus EPA. You know, that bugged conservatives, and they would love to undo that, right? They would love to, because they would love to moot this whole thing by undoing that ruling and saying that CO2 is outside the context of the Clean Air Act and have been muttering about doing that. So the Inflation Reduction Act statutorily locks into place that ruling, right? It says explicitly CO2 qualifies under the Clean Air Act and it instructs EPA to develop new standards, so there's no ambiguity about that. And it says EPA needs to set standards that are going to reduce emissions relative to baseline, where the new baseline is taking the Inflation Reduction Act itself and all its subsidies into account. So it's telling EPA, you know, calculate what all these subsidies are going to do what the new sort of business as usual trajectory of emissions would be, and then develop regulations that reduce it further. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, no, this is, <laughs> this is, this is huge. And I mean, obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act is enormous. It is going to accelerate the clean energy progress that we've seen, you know, in the last decade or so by many fold. It is a huge, huge deal. And one of the provisions in this quite large law essentially reaffirms EPA's not only statutory authority, but its obligation to go ahead and set CO2 emission standards for fossil fuel fired power plants. And so that's a a clear statement from Congress last year. Yeah, clear enough even for John Roberts. (laughs) Right? So we have always thought that that authority and obligation under the statute was was quite clear. Uh, But now it's crystal clear and (laughs) and they need to move. (laughs) And I think it's also important to absorb this new baseline idea because the IRA itself and all the historical progress since the last round of these regs, like – the new expected baseline for power plant emissions is much lower now than it was when Obama's EPA was calculating these things, which commensurately means like you're going to need tighter standards if you want to reduce further than that new baseline. Yeah. And, you know, it is kind of wild to look back on 10 years ago. So it was 10 years ago, 2013, that President Obama announced in his big climate change speech that he was directing his EPA to go ahead and set carbon pollution reduction standards under Section 111 for fossil fuel fired power plants. The first time that was being done. So much has changed in 10 (laughs) years in the power sector. And I think, you know, anyone listening to this podcast knows we are smack in the midst of a clean energy transition in the power industry. Industry itself says so, you know. The Edison Electric Institute says we are, quote, in the middle of a profound long-term transformation in how energy is generated, transmitted, and used. Lazard, the investment firm, estimates that wind costs have fallen by 46%. Solar has fallen by 77% over the past decade. So we're just in a totally different world now than we were 10 years ago. And so we passed the Clean Power Plan's 2030 emission reduction targets 
in 2019 without <laughs> the Clean Power Plan ever having gone into effect. Which, in retrospect, makes all the Republican arguments about how this is an economy-killing regulation and it's too strong and it's unrealistic and there's no way we can move that fast look utterly ludicrous, which we all said at the time, but we had to pretend that it was a real live argument. So they're saying it's too stringent. It's going to destroy the economy. And here we rocketed past it in 2019 without any regs. Right. And, you know, that is part and parcel with each time there are new ambitious pollution standards set every time under the Clean Air Act, industry claims the sky's going to fall. You know, this happened with the acid rain yes. program back in the 90s. The American Electric Power predicted that it was going to destroy the economy of the Midwest. Like, <laughs> the lights are going to go out. The sky is going to fall. Every time. And we never learn. We never learn from those previous examples. It's crazy. Right. And so the actual costs of complying with the acid rain program and reducing sulfur dioxide ended up being, I think, around a tenth of what industry had <laughs> estimated. Sulfur scrubbers are now widely used. The program's been a great success. It is this great example of how we can set pollution standards and then innovate to meet them cost-effectively and quicker than anyone expects. We do it over and over again. Over and over again. And we can do it in this context. Right. One more thing before we get to what's available for the new standards. We should uh, mention, or I, I should mention that um, when the clean power plant got shut down, the legal obligation to pass regulations on existing power plants then passed to the Trump administration, which did <laughs> that sort of passed a, what was it called? The Clean America? What? Uh, the Affordable Clean Energy Plan. Uh, yes, Affordable Clean Energy, the ACE Plan, which several analyses showed would on net have raised <laughs> emissions <laughs> yes, in yes. the power plant sector. So those got shut down in court too. They were just completely a joke, ludicrous. So that's all the history. So here we are. Biden's EPA has got to regulate existing power plants and new power plants. And it can't take this so-called outside the fence line holistic approach that the clean power plant took. So it's got to set standards based on what you can do at the individual power plant level inside the fence line, as they say. So what are the options? I mean, well, actually, I'm talking way too much, but let me get one more thing out of the way and then, I'll let, and then I'll let you talk. But like one of the things that faced the reason, I just want people to understand this too, the reason Obama took this approach, the reason Obama's EPA took this outside the fence line holistic approach is that if you're just restricting yourself to the individual power plant, you're stuck with either marginal improvements, right? You get the boiler to work more efficiently. You 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 tighten up efficiency and you can sort of marginally, you, you know, three to five percent reduce emissions. Or on the other side, there's carbon capture and sequestration, which especially 10 years ago when Obama EPA was contemplating it was, you know, not very well tested, not very well proven, super expensive. So you either had sort of like a, a fly swatter or a nuke 
when it comes to the individual power plant, which is why they went with the holistic approach. So now the holistic approach is off the table. We're back to the fly swatter or nuke problem. So just tell us sort of like, what are the available options here? Yeah, so you kind of covered the two ends of the range, right? On one end, the the very low ambition end, you can make minor improvements to the operating efficiency of the plant, the way the plant operates. That was the basis for the standards that the Trump administration issued. (laughs) Uh, And as you noted, improving the efficiency of the plant makes it run you know, better and it can be called upon to run more and therefore can end up increasing its overall emissions, mm-hmm. um, that, that sort of rebound effect. That's a possibility. You know, you, you can still reduce emissions through operating efficiency improvements. And I think there's more options that could achieve greater reductions than the ones that the Trump administration included in their rule. But, you know, still we're talking the very low end single percentage uh, reductions. In the middle, there's this option of co-firing with a lower carbon fuel. So if you're talking about coal plants, you can co-fire that coal plant partially with gas. In a gas plant, you could co-fire partially with hydrogen, and you're going to bring the emissions rate of the plant down somewhat. Um, in some of our uh, analysis, you know, we've we've estimated that a 40% co-firing coal with gas, so co-firing a coal plant with 40% gas, gets you about a 20% emission reduction. Mm. So it's not nothing, but it also involves additional fossil infrastructure to get gas to a coal plant or additional infrastructure to get hydrogen to a gas plant and on top of, you know, several other issues with hydrogen that we can talk about a little later. Uh, Well, a legal question, I guess all of this in some respect is arbitrary, but where is the line between forcing fuel switching, which I think Supreme Court said was out of bounds and too far, versus a rule that requires co-firing, which is like kind of like halfway to fuel switching. Is there a (laughs) legal distinction there between those two? There's absolutely precedent for requiring cleaner fuels or fuel processes. What the Supreme Court mentioned, at least in dicta, was, oh, we we don't want to see standards that would force a plant to stop existing. (laughs) (laughs) And so essentially, if EPA were to base the standard on total conversion from coal to gas... Uh, which some coal plants have undertaken with, you know, cheap gas prices, that I think, based on our reading of the decision anyway, would probably be too far. Uh So full conversion, probably off the table along with generation shifting. But partial co-firing is actually one of the technologies that the Obama administration considered for their clean power plan, as was carbon capture. And as you noted, the approach that they took in the clean power plan, they selected because it was the most cost effective. So they ruled out carbon capture and co-firing, not because they weren't adequately demonstrated or available they were just more expensive than the approach that EPA ended up going with. 
but now we're forced back basically to that more expensive approach. Right. As I I mentioned before, but want to keep reiterating, this is all about setting the level of the standard, finding it's the, it's a math problem. EPA looks at the options. And so, you know, the options as we see them are efficiency improvements, getting very little, co-firing, getting somewhere in the middle, or carbon capture and storage, getting the most amount of emission reductions. They look out at that and they select the best system. Then they apply it to the plant and essentially do a math problem and come out with a number, a numerical limit for the amount of CO2 emission reductions that the plants need to achieve. Then they hand the baton off to the states for existing sources and to the companies for new sources. So this is not a requirement to install that specific technology. It's a way to derive the level of the standard and then pass that off to the states and the companies to comply with. Right. EPA sets the standard and then says to states and companies, do what you want. Right. As long as you can meet this number, be creative, (laughs) innovate. Right. The central question is what Upon what technology is the number going to be based on? Exactly, exactly. This low end, this something in the middle, and this high end, um, which is carbon capture and sequestration. So here I want to talk about what the sort of arguments are around this. It says in the text of the Clean Air Act that EPA should set the standard based on the best available system that has to be adequately demonstrated. So I just want to dig in a little bit on the technical legal language here. Like what exactly, or what have courts interpreted that language to mean exactly? What is it, what is required to be adequately demonstrated? A single demonstration plant somewhere, like some good charts and graphs in a lab, or do you have to be commercial or does price and, you know, um, um, financial viability come into that? Like what is EPA thinking about when it thinks about what is adequately demonstrated and or or best. Yes. Okay. So I'm a Clean Air Act lawyer. <laughs> this is my favorite part. I love the Clean Air Act. <laughs> and I love to talk about the language of the statute because that's actually what we're really fighting over here. EPA is tasked with establishing the standard of performance. And so that definition is in the statute. They have to determine the degree of emission limitation that can be achieved through the application of the best system of emission reduction that is adequately demonstrated considering cost, energy factors, and essentially other factors. And so there's this really defined set of criteria that EPA needs to go through as they're determining what's the best system of emission reduction. So we've been talking about adequately demonstrated that, you know, it can't be a made up technology, (laughs) but it also doesn't have to be widely used by everyone already. The Clean Air Act is technology forcing. It's forward looking. Right. It requires the regulated source to reduce its emissions commensurate with the best control systems that are available, not the ones that are already sort of, you know, out there in use that plants are choosing to use of their own accord. So again, in a lot of ways, this is analogous to SO2 scrubbers, which were not in widely use. They were not widely produced in the 90s. 
And there were all these doom and gloom predictions of how much it's going to cost. We're not going to be able to do this. So right now, there's no limit at all on CO2 emissions from power plants. There's been no reason to innovate on carbon capture for power plants. And there is not a ton of projects out there in the world. But there are plenty to serve as an adequate demonstration for purposes of the Clean Air Act. You know, there's there's essentially three parts here of carbon capture. There's capture, there's transport, and there's storage. And each part of that process is well established and has been in use for decades, especially the capture part. We've been capturing carbon for decades. And so yeah. there's plenty of demonstration in both pilot projects and at commercial scale to be applied in the power sector. It doesn't have to be something that's already, you know, widely out there. So it's sort of a holistic consideration then. EPA is sort of attempting to apply something like wisdom here. Like the there's a balance of considerations. And I assume, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the usual suspects are arguing to EPA that that would be too strict, that a standard based on CCS would be too strict. And presumably the way they're making that argument is by saying CCS is not the best or adequately demonstrated. So what is their argument? Have you read like their briefs? Do they have a specific (laughs) argument here? They do. And they're familiar. You know, it's (laughs) it's the same set of arguments that we've seen over and over. It's too costly. We can't do it yet. Uh, we're, we're getting there. Just let us do this at our own pace. Uh, one of the r- really rush? concerning things is the argument that we need gas now. And we're okay with standards that are you know, based on something we might do in the future. So uh, set the standards only at a level that we're, you know, ready for CCS, that we're ready for hydrogen sometime uh, yes. in the future. CCS ready. CCS ready, hydrogen ready. And that's I love just, that phrase. Uh, it's just kicking the can down the road. Like your own David Hawkins once said, it's like saying my driveway is Ferrari ready. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I think... What's at the heart of this? Industry estimates that CCS can achieve 90% capture and emissions data from the projects that have been built back that up. That is not to say that EPA needs to go ahead and require a 90% emission reduction from every single coal and gas plant in the country, right? We think it makes the most sense for EPA to draw some distinctions based on the role that the plants perform on the grid, right? So there's a there's a big difference between... Oh, really? Yes. So, so there's a big difference between plants that are used for baseload power that are running constantly all the time and those that are used intermittently for reliability as backup power during times of high demand. There does not need to be the exact identical standards on those two types of plants. So plants that are running full time are emitting the most and they should be required to reduce their emissions to the greatest degree. So we think it makes sense to have, you know, a 90% capture based standard 
for plants that are going to serve as baseload, that are going to run all the time. And it's the most cost effective for those types of plants to install CCS, especially when you consider the tax credit. Plants that are operating intermittently as backup are already emitting less pollution simply by running less. And those plants can face a less stringent standard, stay on the grid as backup, and serve that really important reliability function without being required to install CCS. They can meet a a lesser standard. Is there a distinction between those two kinds of plants that is clean enough and clear enough to set legal limits around them? Because there are some fuzzy edge cases and then number two, are we sure that EPA, like that's within EPA sort of, that's not major for <laughs> for EPA to be thinking, you know, to be sort of specifying which standards apply based on function, based on um, operations? Yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of detailed analytical and technical decision making that is well within the expert agency's wheelhouse. You know, this is this is exactly the type of thing that the experts at the agency are normally tasked by the statute to do. They're the ones who run the numbers and figure out what's most appropriate for the specific type of plant that they're regulating. And in fact, <laughs> the existing standards uh, for new sources do include these sorts of subcategorization based on the use type of the plant. So this is this is not something, you know, complex and mysterious. This is based on true and visible distinctions between types of plants based on the way that they're used. And I, I think it really is yet another layer of the sort of flexibility yeah. that EPA can and should build into this program. Again, none of this is a particular mandate. And so the states and the companies then have that additional choice. Well, they can run a plant full steam and install controls, or they can run intermittently, keep that plant online and face a lesser limit, or they can retire it and make their own choices about what to replace it with. This is providing, you know, more and more levels of choices to the regulated industry to comply in the way that makes sense for them. Yeah, and something you mentioned in passing, I want to just uh, uh, highlight and put a pin in here, which is that, you, you know, a big argument here on your side is CCS is now being showered with subsidies. Like there are huge subsidies coming down from the Inflation Reduction Act for captured hydrogen enough to make them economic in some cases, or or certainly a lot closer. So these are synergistic, I'm saying, like the Biden administration's legislation is bolstering the case for these tighter standards because, you know, CCS is not just on its own now. Now it's explicitly being helped and shaped and stood up by government grants. That's right. And, you know, at the same time, the Inflation Reduction Act also contains a ton of money for renewables. And so that level of investment across these types of technologies really changes the overall cost of the regulations. And that's one of the things that, you know, EPA has to consider is the overall cost of compliance to the system. And so, again, when these, you know, standards are in place, and states and companies are looking out across their fleet and saying, oh, what should we do? All of those 
incentives are going to come into that consideration for them. And it makes renewables really, really cheap (laughs) to replace your older, dirtier generation with. I got one more question about the standard setting before I want to get into the politics a little bit. But um, some energy heads out there may be familiar with a company called NetPower, which has come up with a new, I guess it's a couple of years old now, they've built one demonstration plan, a new technology that without getting into the technological details, it's really fascinating. I might do a whole pod on it, but basically it burns natural gas, emits no particulate pollution at all, and captures 100% of the CO2 emissions as a purified stream of CO2. So you have in net power, a natural gas power plant with zero particulate emissions and 100% carbon capture. They've built one. (laughs) It's running and working. So has there been any talk about using that as a standard? Because that would be 100% carbon reduction. Has NetPower's tech come up in these discussions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's very cool, right? It is very (laughs) cool. It was included, um, the EPA put out a white paper last year asking for input, you know, sort of pre-regulatory input on the technologies that are available to reduce emissions, specifically from gas plants. And they took comment on uh, the net power approach, which I cannot remember the name of, alum something something cycle. Yeah, alum, alum cycle. I think <laughs> yeah. is right. I was trying to think of that too. Um, and it, you know, it is really cool and innovative, and I I hope that that is a direction that we're going to see. You know, any remaining fossil uh, generation go in, but you know, and I think we may see that um, in the proposal. Again, you know, all of what I'm talking about here is. We have not seen a proposal from EPA. This is sort of NRDC's perspective on what is possible, justifiable, achievable, and and legally defensible in court. And this is what we've been advocating for before the agency. And then we'll have to see what they come up with. We're expecting a proposal, you know, relatively soon, probably within a month or so. What's really interesting to, to me about this, in a, it, just from a pro- political perspective, is it's a sort of weird inversion here of the typical roles. So you've got the power sector, which has been touting CCS for years to sort of like defend the ongoing existence of fossil power plants. They sort of wave their hands at CCS and say, no, we can go clean too. So, you know, they've got Joe Manchin out up there saying, I, I want to go clean, but I want to do it with fossil. I think they've like, I literally think they've convinced him that they can, you know, eliminate, eliminate their carbon emissions. And traditionally, you've had sort of greens and climate people saying, that's ah, big and overly complicated and overly expensive and stupid and nobody's ever really going to do it. And it's just going to make more sense to switch to clean generation. And so now... We've got this odd political inversion where the power companies are saying, whoa, 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 CCS is not really ready. We didn't mean ready, ready. We we meant, you know, just over the horizon is what we meant. Like, that's where they like it. They like CCS just over the horizon. And all of a sudden, this is like calling their bluff. Like, oh, you've been talking about this for decades. Well, how about you use it? And then on the green side, on the climate side, you have a, a similar inversion where now – 
greens and green groups like yours are arguing like CCS. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's right there. It's ready to, to go. Absolutely ready to serve as the basis for a standard. It's just odd and funny. And I just wonder if you have any comment on the politics of trying to herd the cats in the climate community around this message of like CCS is ready and viable, which I don't think comes naturally to a lot of factions, let's say, within the climate community. Well, that's that's well phrased. You know, I think <laughs> <laughs> we're walking we're walking a fine line. <laughs> I think our vision for the power sector and the power industry is one of net zero. And in order to get to net zero, that means a heck of a lot of renewables and a heck of a lot less fossil. Right. For the purposes of setting pollution limits, we need a technological basis. And by far and away, CCS is the most effective of the options that we've got. That the Supreme Court left us. Exactly. And, you know, I think it is very important to have limits on the CO2 emissions from power plants. I think that uh, is sort of the baseline, <laughs> most important thing from our point of view. Right. Well, lots of, I mean, reports, we should just, just say lots of reports have been done saying, you know, um, the legislative progress is great, but it's not enough to reach Biden's stated goal. And to reach Biden's stated goal, you need a whole of administration approach, including these standards. Exactly, exactly. So, and just to put some actual numbers on that, you know, if we want to meet our international and domestic greenhouse gas emission reduction targets for 2030, we need to get our power sector emissions down by 80% from the 2005 sort of peak emissions. We're already about a third of a reduction, you know, a 33%-ish reduction since 2005. Our analysis and RDCs of the Inflation Reduction Act puts us now on track to cut our power sector emissions by about 65% mm -hmm. by 2030. So that is massive. Yeah. And also not enough. Right. And our our estimate there is somewhere in the middle. There's a really wide range of modeling of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And it, you know, it a lot of work is going to need to be done in order to get those emission reductions um, that we're sort of showing in that modeling, yes. right? It's not a it's not a foregone conclusion. Yeah, one of the wildest things going on right now is just the incredible range of projections about what the IRA will do, right? Like the sort of government came up with, oh, that's going to, you know, there's going to spend $370 on these tax credits. And then like Credit Suisse is like, actually, it's more like a trillion. And then I, th I think there was another one last week is like, actually, it's more like a trillion five. So like the range of amounts of money that could come out of this bill are just huge. It's It's so opaque. It is. And, you know, a lot still remains to be written in all the guidance for these tax credits. But that sort of uncertainty aside, I think the Inflation Reduction Act is going to accelerate a bunch of clean energy and it's going to get us, you know, a bunch of emission reductions in the power sector. And at least based on our analysis, that's not quite enough. And we absolutely are going to need 
limits on the CO2 emissions in addition to investments in clean energy. So maybe the way to the way to summarize is just to say endorsing CCS as the basis of a performance standard is different than endorsing CCS full stop. Yeah. Well put. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what we see in the modeling reflects you know, what I've been saying about the decision-making that comes once EPA sets the standard. So when we model standards that are based on CCS, and we've included the Inflation Reduction Act in the baseline, Mm -hmm. we overall get to around between 70 and 77% CO2 emission reduction by 2030. And what we're seeing in the actual, you know, generation results there is some CCS deployment and also a ton of clean energy. This is my next question, actually, and you're you're here answering it before I even asked it, but I just wanted to ask as a matter of curiosity, has someone modeled what would happen if EPA sets the standards where you are <laughs> endorsing? And what does the modeling say about the decisions power companies are going to make? Like how many of these plants how many fossil fuel plants will shut down versus installing CCS? I don't know if there's like a, an easy answer to that. Or... <laughs> well, so I, we have done lots of modeling <laughs> <laughs> and we've been doing it for quite a while because even before this Supreme Court decision last summer, we were anticipating that EPA was going to be constrained and in this, you know, sort of inside the fence line yeah. way. And so we've really been looking (laughs) for ways to get the most ambition and the most emission reductions out of these sort of source-specific basis for the standards. That range that I gave you is based on CCS and partial CCS runs. So 70 to 77% overall emission reductions, depending how much you crank the dial on the ambition, but still with some of those sort of flexibilities that I talked about in terms of the type of use of the plant. And what we see in those runs is renewables and energy storage capacity tripling Mm. from now to 2030 and quadrupling by 2035. And I think that is in large part based on these new Inflation Reduction Act tax credits being just so, so, so much more cost effective. And we still do see some retrofits with carbon capture and storage and some new builds of gas with carbon capture but not, you know, a massive amount. And so there is some uptake of the technology and there's also some some reinvestment in clean energy. And that kind of tracks with what you would expect, yeah. right? And that, bring, you know, kind of goes back to that was essentially what EPA was counting on and basing their standards off of in the clean power plan. And that's why they did it that way. I think we can do it this way. And that carbon capture and storage based best system of emission reduction can be shown to be available to the the plants that could use it. And 
you know, not all plants are going to make that choice. It's going to be up to the states and the companies to look at their options and choose whether they want to keep that plant online. And that should work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So NRDC is recommending a CCS-based standard for both existing source regs and new source regs. Is there any difference between those two that's worth sort of pulling out here? Yeah. So I think industry estimates that CCS can achieve 90% capture. And so given that that technology exists, we think it should be used to set the standard for at least the plants that are operating at full bore, both new and existing. When you're building a new plant, you have you know, much greater options in terms of where you're siting it, how you're building it, you should be required to use the latest and greatest technology on a brand new plant. So that's pretty straightforward. For existing plants, because they're all over the place, we rely on them already for power. There needs to be more flexibility. There needs to be more of a phase-in sort of glide path to compliance and some flexibility for how you're going to comply, and some exemptions for those plants that are going to commit to retire. You know, Mm. you don't want to make them retrofit right before they're expected to retire. You want to just let them plan to retire at the natural, you know, end of life of the plant. And so giving that flexibility on the existing source side is going to be really important and, you know, has long been part of the way that the Section 111 standard setting has worked to differentiate between new and existing plants. So CCS-based standard in both cases, but maybe more flexibility and implementation for the existing plants. Exactly. You know, if EPA does use CCS or hydrogen, something like that, as the basis for its performance standard, does it have any say at all in the details of sort of how CCS or hydrogen are used or measured? You know, because uh, Volt's listeners just got a, an hour and a half <laughs> earful of, of discussion of the hydrogen, the clean hydrogen tax credits, uh, you know, last week. And the details are many and they make a big difference in how clean hydrogen is used, how it's measured, sort of how its carbon intensity is assessed, how much you know end users are allowed to claim reductions from using it, et cetera, et cetera. Does EPA get into any of that or is this purely just we're using this tech as a way to set the numerical standard, but the details of how a power plant might implement this is somebody else's problem? So they absolutely have some authority over how it gets used to comply with this standard. So for purposes of standard setting, they're looking, you know, kind of broadly at what the technology is capable of achieving, how it's been used in the past, how it could apply to power plants that exist now. In terms of compliance, though, they've got the authority over CO2, essentially, in this rulemaking. And so if a plant is going to demonstrate compliance using carbon capture and storage or hydrogen, they can absolutely include the types of, 
you know, rigorous monitoring and verification requirements right, that's that my they question. would need to see in order for a plant to d- be demonstrating compliance using one of these technologies. Right. So they can get into saying, like, here's what does and doesn't qualify as full CCS, like measured every so often or this kind of geographical storage. Like they can't get into that. I absolutely think so. I think they have authority to say, you know, you need to have rigorous monitoring and verification from the point of capture to the point of sequestration. And that needs to be part of your demonstration of compliance Mm. um, for using carbon capture. For hydrogen, oof, it's a little trickier, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I'm very aware at the moment. Uh, Yes. (laughs) To the extent that there is going to be a pathway for hydrogen to be used for compliance, it's got to take into account where that hydrogen comes from how it's made in order to avoid net emissions increases. And I think they absolutely have that authority given that the purpose of this is for the best system of emission reduction. (laughs) They've got to ensure that it is truly reducing emissions. Maybe they can just borrow whatever treasury comes up with for the Uh, the hydrogen. (laughs) Assuming it's good. Yes, true. If EPA doesn't go with CCS, doesn't go with the high end here, what do you think it will do? Will it fall back to something medium, something in the fuel blending sort of range? or or And just more broadly, do we have any sense at all of what EPA is thinking or which direction it's going or what it's, you know, what to expect? I think... In terms of publicly facing tea leaves, what we've got to look at really is that white paper from last year where they laid out the options and said, hey, give us some comments on what you think of these options for reducing CO2 emissions from combustion turbines. From everything that we have seen from this administration, we are hoping that they're going to be ambitious. You know, mm-hmm. we they know, <laughs> they know that this is a critical moment. They know that this is an important wedge of emissions, that the power sector is still a really significant percentage of our emissions, roughly a quarter, and that we need standards on those CO2 emissions and they need to be strong. And it's not going to be worth all this work, honestly, (laughs) if they don't make them strong. And so that has been our message to the administration is, look, if you're going to go through the trouble of doing this all over again, let's make it worth it. Is Manchin, like, he's like the monster under my bed at this point. Like, is there some way he could come? Is there some way Manchin could burst out of the closet and screw this up somehow? Or is he? <laughs> is he I, I hesitate to even speculate. <laughs> like, can I just not think about him in this respect? Or is there, is there, does he have some way that he could theoretically muck this up? Or is this something that's finally just sort of beyond his reach? You know, I think... For now, the ball is in EPA's court to come out with a proposal and to take public comments and to consider them. And so for right now, this is an EPA project. Once it's finalized, it will presumably be subject to a Congressional Review Act resolution, and it will depend on who is in charge right. as to what happens there. And so that's when Congress gets to have its 
veto opportunity over regulations, which is unfortunate, but it is the world we're living in. And does that just require a majority or a supermajority? I believe it's just a majority, but it can be blocked by the president. Right. And by the time there's a new president... It'll be too late. Like we're we're coming in under the deadline that this would that, that this that the Congressional Review Act, if it's going to happen at all, would happen under Biden and thus would be vetoed. So that's not really. And so that takes place at the final rule. So we're only at the proposal stage. We've got a long way to go. Oh, geez, is it going to get done under this under the Congressional Review Act? Well, just to just explain to to listeners, Congressional Review Act is, says basically Congress can undo or veto a regulation, basically within a certain window of it being finalized, which is 60 60 working days, which does not equal the calendar days. Right. So what you want to do is get your regulations on the books more than 60 working days prior to the next presidential election. Exactly. Just so you're sure your guy's in charge if it happens. The date that we are looking at is next April, roughly a year mm. from now, for all of these regulations, right? Like it's not just Yeah, there's this a lot. This, these are not the only ones. There's a lot of, there's a big backlog. It is. And, you know, we're, we are seeing the um, use of the Congressional Review Act right now as we speak in this Congress with attempts to invalidate the rules that the administration has recently finalized. It is a terrible tool. It is, it's it so is not dumb. a good it is not a good thing. It's it's a Newt Gingrich special, isn't it? If, am it I is. am I right it about was, the history? Yes, of course, like so exactly. many like so many malignant things in our government. <laughs> but it back is to Newt. it is the world we're living in, and you know I think the the administration is aware of the timeline that's facing them next year. Interesting. So you think a proposed rule is going to show up in the next month or two. Yeah, we're expecting a proposed rule um, maybe by the end of April. And then, you know, what happens that gets published in the Federal Register, there's an opportunity for public comment, Mm -hmm. there's public hearings. And so there will be sort of a flurry of activity as everybody gets their comments in. And then the agency has to review those comments and address them in the final rule. Um, that's part of the, you know, sort of administrative law 101. Right. <laughs> and then they have to issue the final rule and demonstrate, yeah, we heard all your comments and this is why we made the decisions that we made. Right. And that's when the lawsuits kick off. <laughs> and that's when the lawsuits start. Exactly. We do it all over again. It's just it's the circle of life. Yes. And, and what do you think are the chances that this Supreme Court ends up hearing a case on this again. Do you think the do you think they can the conservatives can mount a legal case plausible enough to get it back into the Supreme Court? I would never speculate <laughs> about what this Supreme Court will do because who knows, right? Our job is to make this thing as airtight as possible and you know, Chief Justice Roberts gave us a, a, some guidelines and a roadmap in the West Virginia decision. He told us what he's looking for, and it's this sort of traditional-looking approach to pollution control. And so that's what we're operating under, and we are urging EPA to, you know, follow those guidelines and do the most that they can 
within those constraints and we'll be there to defend it with them if it comes down to that. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Lisa Lynch of NRDC, thank you for coming and forecasting and explaining all this with us. Maybe we'll we'll talk again in that distant future day when these things are actually on the books and the lawsuits have started. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk again. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.